Good morning, saints. You may have noticed that today is a high holy day. It's a red letter day, Super Bowl Sunday. I'm not saying which team God prefers, but I think it's the 49ers. Um, let's bow our hearts in prayer as we gather around the Word of God. Open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 20 and we'll pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you are a God who makes good on your promises. We can trust them. You're the God who said that when two or three gather together in your name, that you'd be there. You're the God who said that you inhabit, you live in the very praises of your people, and here you are. By the power of your convicting, faith-giving, assuring, encouraging Holy Spirit. We ask now that you would give us humble hearts, eyes to see and ears to hear, as we look closely at this passage in your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, Acts chapter 20. Um, we're going to pick up at verses 17 to 18, right where Gabriana was reading. Look at verse 17. It says, Now from Miletus he, that's Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. If you look in the Bible map that you have probably in one of your study Bibles or maybe just Google it when you get home, you'll see that Miletus was on the west. It was a western coastal city of what we now call Turkey. They would have called it Asia Minor. Paul has arrived in Miletus and it's about a 48-kilometer journey from Miletus to Ephesus. Upon getting to Miletus, Paul calls the very first ever clergy day. <laughs> Did you notice that? It's um, the elders from Ephesus. This is a pastor's summit. It's notable in the book of Acts for several reasons, not least of which it's one of those we passages. Remember, we've seen those throughout Acts. This is a, a time when Luke is himself in the story. So he has not had to talk to other eyewitnesses. He was there to see this. He saw it and heard it with his own eyes and ears. It's also notable, and this is where it becomes really interesting, because this, what we have here, is the only sermon of Paul recorded in Acts that is directly for a Christian audience. Did you notice that? All the other sermons that we see recorded in Acts, some of them are to the Jews, some of them are to the Greeks, some are to the Jews and Greeks, some of them are defenses before the authorities. But here, Paul is preaching to Christians, Christian elders, Christians. You'll notice as, uh, as Gabriana read through this that this sermon, if you will, it follows a similar pattern and shape to many of Paul's letters, and of course, why wouldn't it? It's only natural. He writes his letters to the Christians, to churches, and so it would have the same shape. In particular, this sermon is applied to Ephesian elders, but it's, it's a bunch of encouragement and challenge that Paul could have preached to any one of the churches that he founded. I want to suggest to you this morning that it's 
a message not only to the Ephesian church, to any of those churches that he founded, but contained within it is also a message for St. George's today. Most literally, he is talking to the elders of the church, but more broadly, these principles can be applied to all Christians. After all, what is an elder in the church except a mature Christian, someone who's been walking with the Lord for a long time and is notably and exceptionally shaped by the Word of God? And Paul, well, you know, it's just a, it's a tender letter. It's a tender speech, isn't it? Very heartfelt. Because Paul knows that he's leaving these Ephesian elders, these men that he led to Christ, that he discipled, that he saw them grow in the gospel, he, he knows that he is going to leave them, and he says, you will never see my face again. So what is it that we can glean from this sermon, from this speech? Well, in a broad sense, what we glean from this speech are the hallmarks of a healthy church. The patterns that are normative for New Testament churches. And, that, and that's, that's pretty interesting to me, because... Often when we think about Paul, we think about him as the apostle to the Gentiles, traveling from city to city with the intent of spreading the gospel. In other words, when we think about Paul, we think about the spread and propagation of the gospel. We think about the gift of evangelism. And to be sure, Paul was very concerned with that. He gave his life to it. But here we see that Paul was not only interested in the spread of the gospel, but in the health of local churches. He was concerned to not only see people converted to Christ and see churches begun, he was concerned that they would endure, that they would persevere under pressures from outside and tensions within. Now, typically our sermons are organized around two or three points. Right? And then we take the passage and we break it down into those. But this morning, I want us instead to just move through this entire passage. We're going to do so in an orderly manner and just let the logic, the warp, and the woof of God's very word speak to us this morning. Is that okay? Might be a little harder for your note-taking. I'll, I'll try to signpost things as we move. So let's jump in and see what it is that we're to glean. Look at verses 18 to 19. And when they came to him, these Ephesian elders came to Miletus, when they came to him, he, Paul, said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Paul sets before this church, before these elders, his known pattern for ministry. This is this is what Paul did every place he went. That's why when he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he said to Timothy, an elder in the church in Ephesus, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, 
my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Look, when Paul is talking to these Ephesian elders and he's saying goodbye to them, he sets out for us a pattern of Christian ministry that's healthy. It's relational. Paul can say to the Ephesian elders, as he says to Timothy, he's like, look, you, you saw me working among you. Verse 19, here's the pattern. Paul says that when I was working among you, um, verse 19, serving the Lord. Oh, look, let's not move too quickly off this point, friends. Paul knew something that each and every one of us must take to heart. Paul said, by serving you in the Ephesian, in the Ephesian church, I was actually serving the Lord. Look, consider the implications for you as a Christian man or woman today at St. George's. Every time you serve the body of Christ, you're not just filling in a slot on the volunteer roster. You're serving the Lord. You think that you're just minding little kids in the nursery, but you're actually serving the Lord. You think that you're just teaching in the Sunday school, but you're actually serving the Lord. You think you're just greeting people at the front door. Do, do you want me to go on? To serve the local church is to serve the Lord and to work at his behest. The first thing Paul sets out in verse 19. The second thing he says, um, serving the Lord with all humility. How many times in scripture does Paul refer to himself as a slave of Christ? To serve the Lord means to embrace the downward mobility that is at the heart and core of the gospel. If you are going to serve the Lord in the church, no matter in what capacity, you must look to Jesus as your example. Jesus who left his heavenly throne Jesus, who set aside his heavenly prerogatives to condescend, to take the form of a human, to take the form of a slave, and be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Serving in the local church is serving the Lord, and we do so with humility. The third thing he says in verse 19, he says, I did it with all humility and with tears, Well, see here, Paul is saying that when you serve the Lord in the local church, um, you do it with humility and you do it with tears. And tears to me speak of empathy. It is true that when you are serving in a local church, when you're a Christian and you're giving of yourself and your time to strengthen the local body, there will be tensions from within. That's what Paul's talking about when he says, I served the Lord with humility and with tears. There are going to be tensions within. He says, not only tears, verse 19, but with trials. 
Well, if tears represent the tensions that are within any given church when you're serving the Lord, the trials are things that come from the outside, aren't they? Here, Paul says, the many trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews. Okay, verses 18 to 19, Paul is setting out this as his known pattern of ministry. Look at verses 20 and 21. And he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. We're going to pick up this same theme again in a couple of verses in verse 27, but for now I want you to see a couple of things. Look at verse 20. The mode by which Paul delivered this profitable teaching. Do you see it there in verse 20? He sets out two things. He says, I did not shrink back from preaching to you anything that was profitable. Teaching you in public. That's the first one. And the second one is house to house. Look, this is really important for churches to note. Healthy churches embrace apostolic teaching in at least these two ways. In large public gatherings and in growth groups. If you want to think about a, a local church, you can think about it in terms of concentric circles. The Sunday gathering is the largest gathering of the most people. Then at St. George's, we have mid-sized groups, and those mid-sized groups would be things like home fellowship at Kelvin and Shelley's, men's group once a month on Saturdays, women's group on Monday night. These mid-sized groups would be the next concentric circle. Then we have growth groups that meet once every week or every second week, and those are small groups. Here's the takeaway from this one, friends. One of the best predictors of whether you as a Christian man or woman will grow in Christ is the extent to which you have connected with the local body of Christ. Do you come to church regularly for the large gathering? Are you connected in either the mid-sized groups or the growth groups, the small groups? Paul says, I, I didn't shrink back from sharing with you everything that was profitable, both in large groups and home to home, house to house. Verse 21, if that was the mode that Paul delivered profitable teaching, what was the content of his profitable teaching? Look at verse 21. Testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so the content of any teaching that is profitable for Christians is always the same and has never changed. Calling the Greeks and the Jews, that is everyone, to first of all repent. What, what is repentance? Repentance means to turn away from. To, to acknowledge the fact that your life was at one time proceeding on a certain set of assumptions about yourself and God and the world. You were 
loving things and despising other things, your life was going in a particular direction, to repent means to change your mind and turn away from those things. That's the first thing to note about profitable teaching. Paul calls all Jews and all Greeks to repent, turn away from. What's the next piece? Turn towards God. You see it there in the text? And the third thing is that profitable teaching includes always faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, remember what we're doing here is we're looking at Paul's final speech, his farewell speech to the Ephesian elders. And in it, we're gleaning these tidbits of what a healthy church looks like. In, in, this, in this part, we see that a healthy church um, teaches in large settings and in small, that the content of that profitable teaching is repentance away from the way you used to live towards God and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the same is true today. There's something um, amiss in much of what we call preaching in churches these days. Experts have coined the phrase moralistic therapeutic deism. Have you ever heard that one? Here, here, let, me, let me tell you what it means. Moralistic therapeutic deism. So much of what we sadly refer to as preaching these days is not preaching of this kind of content. Repent, turn away from, turn toward God and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Flee the wrath that is to come. That's preaching. Moralistic therapeutic deism is moralistic. It reduces the gospel to what you need to do and what you ought not to do. That's moralism. The gospel doesn't say do. It says done by God for you. See, that's the difference between moralism and the gospel. Moralistic. Therapeutic is the second thing that marks this false preaching. Therapeutic means that not only is it moralistic, but it's therapeutic. It, it's preaching that is a, a TED talk that puts you at the very center of everything. Your feelings, your needs, your comfort, you know, all that stuff. Moralistic, therapeutic, and deism. Preaching that treats God as though he, although he created everything, he has now taken his hands off and he's no longer involved in the day-to-day -day operation of his creation. Watch out for moralistic therapeutic deism. When you hear it and you hear people say, gosh, that guy is such a good preacher, correct them and say, no, no, he's a good public speaker. Not a preacher. Moralistic therapeutic deism is um, rampant across so many different churches. And then we wonder why there are so many anemic churches, anemic Christians, who crumble under the first whiff of persecution and hardship. Okay, healthy attribute, attribute of a healthy church. Uh, this one is 
a healthy church will declare everything profitable. Okay, next one. Verses 22 to 25. Here I want you to see that a healthy church bears under the burden of the gospel. Look at 22 to 25. Well, we'll start with 22 to 23. Paul says to them, And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Remember, Paul is ending his third missionary journey here. He's in Miletus. I kind of go like this, but there's no map. You have no idea what I mean, right? Can you picture the westernmost coast of Turkey, Asia Minor? He's making his way from Miletus, and he's going to come all the way down to Jerusalem. He's gathered up and bringing with him the collection for the poor in Jerusalem. That's what he's doing. And Paul knows that he's facing inevitable persecution and afflictions when he gets to Jerusalem. Why wouldn't he expect that from Jerusalem? Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 23? When Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often what I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See your house is left to you desolate for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is not happenstance. There is a direct and distinct parallel between Paul's ministry at this moment, heading to Jerusalem, setting his face there, knowing that what awaits him is hardship and persecution, and the ministry of his Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, who said, remember this, a servant's no greater than his master. If that's what awaited Jesus in Jerusalem, Paul's like, I know that that's what awaits me too. Verses 24 to 25, so how does he respond? He says, he's, he, he says RD paraphrase, he says, it's okay. <laughs> right? Look at verse 24. He says, okay. I do not count my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Remember, we're talking here about the burden of gospel ministry that a healthy church lives under. In verses 24 to 25, Paul acknowledges the burden of gospel ministry and his conclusion is that he counts the gospel as being worth more than his own life. Look, I, I was thinking about this this week and I, I wonder if, let me state it that way, so much of the aimlessness and listlessness, lack of direction, 
lack of vigor, despondency and despair that we see all around us today is actually rooted in this. We've lost a sense collectively and individually of valuing anything greater than our own life. Look, if you, if you want to chart a course of meaning with your life and purpose, then there's got to be something that's worth more to you than your own life. I, I think about the greatest generation who fought in the Great War, you know, my grandfather's generation. These were guys who said, this is a cause that is greater than my own existence and my own life. I'm going to go and I'm going to give myself to it. And they charted the course of human history. We live in a generation where we've been robbed of meaning and purpose because people are so protective and so paranoid over their own life. We shut the whole world down for a virus. Anyway, I'll talk about that another time. And here's the question. What is worth more than your life to you? For Paul, it was the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, to spend eternity with God in the Lord Jesus Christ is worth more than my next breath, and I want to bring as many people with me as I can. See, that kind of purpose eclipses every light and momentary trial and hardship. What is the thing that is worth more to you than your own life? Is there something? Well, in verse 24 to 25, we see that for Paul, it was the weight of love and affection that he has for the Lord Jesus Christ and for these Christians that was greater to him than even his own life. How do you think about that? Well, I, I was thinking about this. You know, it's a weighty matter to begin talking about things that are worth more than your life. When you find something that's worth more than your life, it will serve as heavy ballast deep in the hull of the ship of your life. It will help you to hold course, come what may, and to weather the storms. Well, there's nothing greater than that kind of love for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his people. There is a burden to the gospel, but it's a burden that brings life. Let's look at the next one, verses 26 to 27. Paul's conscience is clear. See, gospel ministry is not only a burden in the sense that we were just talking about, but it also can be a burden on your conscience, but it's a burden that's quickly and readily discharged. Let me tell you what I mean. In the gospel... You, as a Christian man or woman, have been saved. Amen? That's what Romans 1, 16 to 17 says. That it is the gospel that is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. That's you. 
You've been saved in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That means that at some point in your life, someone told you about Jesus. Let let me say that a different way. You and I, as healthy Christians in a healthy church, bear this gospel responsibility and burden because we have been saved in the gospel. Because we have been saved in the gospel because someone told us about Jesus. Always remember that God's grace comes to you on its way to others. If you want to think about it this way, imagine your life as a flowing stream of God's grace, not a stagnant pond. So you as a saved man or woman, as a Christian, you now hold that very same saving message of God's love for sinners in Jesus. You hold it. It's yours. The burden comes because you look all around you and you see people who are living in open rebellion against their God and King. You see people who are dying and going to hell for need of the gospel. It's a burden on your conscience. Yet what we see from Paul here is that it's a burden that is readily discharged. Look at verse 27. Well, start at verse 26. This is what he's saying. He says, Therefore, I testify to you this day, I'm innocent of the blood of all. Verse 27. For I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. You and I have only to preach the whole counsel of God. But that's the key. To preach the whole counsel of God in its entirety, not to pick and choose. There is no easing of your conscience under this gospel burden by just picking and choosing, cherry-picking your favorite verses for TikTok. You know, the ones that are going to make you popular with unbelievers. You got to preach the whole counsel of God. How do we fail in doing so? Have you ever thought about that? If it is preaching, not shrinking back from declaring the whole counsel of God that brings freedom from this burden of the gospel to share it with others, that's how our freedom is found. How do we fail in doing that? Well, I thought of at least three ways. The first one is that um, we shy away from saying things that are unpopular. I'm ashamed of moments when I've done that. A second is that we can so emphasize one part of Scripture that it makes twisted and repugnant other parts. That's shrinking back from declaring the whole counsel of God. Let let me me give you an example. Maybe that'll show you what I mean. If you so emphasize the love of God that you fail to ever talk about the justice, holiness, and wrath of God, then the love of God that you're proclaiming is absolutely meaningless. 
Because the love of God and the whole counsel of God means that in the gospel, God saves you from the wrath of God. Otherwise, the love of God is just warm, fuzzy feelings, and shouldn't we be Canadian, and shouldn't we be nice? See, that's, that's what that is, that second case. You so emphasize one part of Scripture that it twists or makes repugnant another part. A third way that we fail to declare the whole counsel of God is that we just don't do it. We never bring God's word to bear on anything. Okay, so what does this look like for a church like St. George's to not shrink back from preaching the whole counsel of God and therefore to be a healthy church? Well, <laughs> glad you asked. There's a mosque being built right next door to our church. It's something that I've thought a lot about and prayed a lot about over the last little while. And these days, I find myself praying and committing to telling anyone who asks that we are thankful for God's sovereign hand in placing a regional mosque right next door to us so that we can commit to being good Christian neighbors. And to be a good Christian neighbor means to tell every living soul that walks in and out of that mosque that they need to repent and bow their knee before the Lord Jesus Christ or they will die and go to hell. Look, this secular value of like ecumenism and interfaith dialogue it presumes that the single most important thing is to not bring offense. But Paul's saying, I am, I am free from any blood guilt. My conscience has been cleared because I didn't shrink back from preaching the whole counsel of God. If you truly love our soon-to-be Muslim neighbors, you are going to tell them that there's only one way to be saved, and it's through repentance and faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Print that in the Burlington Post. <laughs> Verses 29 to 32. Oh, sorry, let's go back to verse 28. Verse 28 is a key verse. It's applicable specifically to elders and pastors, but it's also applicable to Christian men and women in general. The first thing Paul says here to these Christians, he says, pay attention to yourself. Second thing is, pay attention to the flock. And he reminds them that the church belongs to God because it was purchased with the blood of the Son. Our takeaway here is to remember to never forget how precious and dear how cherished is the church of God. I want you for a moment to imagine the thing that is most precious to you. What's the one thing that you would run back into your burning house to save? Well, Paul's reminding the Ephesian elders here, and he's reminding you and me, that if you're a Christian... If you're part of the church, then you are that to God. You are his most precious possession. 
purchased with the blood of his son. Verse 29 to 32. Paul brings warning. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Here's what, here's what Paul is warning the Ephesian elders and us today. While it is true that the church of Jesus Christ will remain on earth until Christ returns for his bride, every local church is only one generation, one heresy away from obliteration and extinction. You know, you don't have to just believe that from Scripture, although that's why you primarily believe it. You can also just see it experientially. You look around and you see all kinds of churches that are struggling and dying. They're flailing and they're trying to cling to life by twisting the gospel to conform to social norms. And it has the exact opposite effect. It drives them further and more quickly to death because they lose their prophetic voice. They have no grounds or basis to call the world to repentance under the lordship of Jesus because they have given up the central message and they cease to be a church. The imagery Paul uses here is that of wolves. Fierce wolves will come among you. They will not spare the flock. They're going to devour Christians. Verse 30, this is a really sobering caution. Paul warns that the wolves are not going to come from the outside, but they're going to come from among you. There'll be men speaking twisted things, twisting, twisted but alluring things. Can you think of how the scriptures are often twisted to be made more appealing, more palatable? Well, Paul says those are, the proponents of those things are wolves. Devouring fierce wolves. Verse 31, so be alert. Verse 32, a healthy church is a church that is commended to God and to the word of his grace. Here's another one that goes against this culturally imbibed notion. You know, if you, if you ever watch a sitcom or a TV show, the pastor is usually someone who is like frail, pale-skinned, slight-framed, lost in his study, absent-minded. But when Paul envisions the pastors who will follow along after him, what he envisions is men who have fire in their eyes and passionate love in their hearts, not only for the Lord Jesus Christ, but for defending the saints. Men who Commend the church to God. Look, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere anytime soon, um, but there will come a day when I either die or retire. There'll come a point where I no longer feel like I can watch over this church. In fact, if the truth were known, day to day, 99% of the time, 
I'm not there right beside you to help guide you and to help direct you as you walk with the Lord in your day-to-day life. So how do I sleep at night knowing that I'm charged with your care? I commend you to God. I pray for you. Look, if you're a parent, you know how that works. As your children grow up and they gain more and more autonomy and freedom, um, they aren't with you most of the time. And so you commend them to the Lord. You entrust them to God. You remind yourself that the Lord Jesus Christ loves them even more than you do, and he's trustworthy. That's never an excuse to shirk responsibility, either as a pastor or as a parent. But it is a rock-solid foundation from which you can lead and love. Verse 33 to 35, we're nearing the end. Paul's departing words to the Ephesian elders before going to Jerusalem. He says, a healthy church is also one who will remember the weak and the poor. He is himself delivering this gift to the poor in Jerusalem. And Paul encourages and admonishes the elders from the church in Ephesus to be a church that's marked by selfless, self-sacrificing giving. Give till it hurts. Not everyone in the church can give the same amount, but everyone can give to the same level of sacrifice. Concluded verses 36 to 38. This is one of the more tender passages in all of Scripture, is it not? Over this week, as I was studying it, I became convinced that a man should not pastor unless he gets this passage. Look at verse 36. Paul is here in Miletus. Ephesian elders are with him, representing the church. He's saying goodbye to them. He kneels down to pray. What a picture of reverence and solemnity in this moment. Verse 37. They come and they wrap their arms around Paul. They hug him, they kiss him, and they weep. Verse 38, they're sorrowful because they know that they aren't going to see his face again. And so they accompanied him all the way to the ship. What a tender scene. I thought about asking to turn the camera off for this part of the closing of this sermon because this is actually just for you. But there are St. Georgites who watch, so go ahead. I also thought about asking to have the camera turned off because it's very personal and um, I know I'm going to get choked up. It's a personal note from me to you. I love you. This church, you, represent the sum total of my life's work. I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) You will see my face again. But I just wanted to take this opportunity from Acts to say something that I should probably say more. 
St. George's, you are my joy. The letters that commend my ministry are written on your hearts. It'll be 19 years this summer that I've been your pastor. During that time, I think that we have charted a course more adventurous than most churches. In 2008, we left the Anglican Church of Canada. They dragged us before the courts. They kicked us out of our historic building. We then went to the Crossroads Center where we worshiped together for, I think, about six years. During that time, we purchased land and we built this building with all that goes along with that. We were the second building on Palladium Way after Neyland's refrigeration down at the end. Do you remember that, Kelvin? Yeah. Behold God's faithfulness. During that time, um, my first wife, Rhonda, died. Our son, Matthew, was seven. And your kindness to me and to Matthew is something that I will never forget. You were Jesus to us. During that same time, those 19 years, I could tell stories of the moments when many of you were saved. When I had the joy of baptizing you. And watching you grow in your faith through good times and in bad. Watching those moments that 1 Peter talks about where the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, is being refined by the master. What a joy to be your pastor. I'm not going anywhere. But I just wanted you to know that I love you. I long for you to grow in Christ. I long for you to be saved and to have the assurance that you are saved. I, I imagine this day when on the last day, you will be presented before the Lord. You will be presented to him as jewels in his crown. You're my heart. Someday I'm going to retire or die. And on that day, I'll kneel down and pray for you. You guys can hug and kiss me if you want. <laughs> but for now, I just want you to know that I hold you in my heart. So let's close with this final point of application. Paul is finished in Ephesus. And here we have a model for how to finish well. Stephen Covey would tell you that you finish well by beginning with the end in mind. What do you want it to look like when you're done? Start with that in mind. See, Paul went to Ephesus and he knew that he wanted to preach the gospel, see people saved, see elders raised up, see a church that would endure and be saved. 
And so he put all of his energy toward that, and he finished well. What about you? Consider the different spheres and areas of influence in your life. What do you want your family to look like? What do you want your marriage to look like? What do you want your career to look like? What do you want your walk with the Lord to look like in the end? Begin now with that end in mind and marshal all of your energy and your resources to point toward that thing. What do you want people to say about you at your funeral? Then you can work backwards. And like Paul, aim toward that end. And then empowered by the Holy Spirit, you will finish well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Bible, your very word written. We thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit that confirms and strengthens in everything that's good and convicts us of sin, pressing us ever more deeply into Jesus. God, I pray that we would not only be a growing church where the gospel is shared, but that we would be a healthy church. That as was Paul's wish for the church in Ephesus, that we would endure and finish well. We pray this in your name. Amen.